You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Record. All right, this is Abraham. Oh, sorry. And this is Rhino. <laughs> and this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite psychology podcast. Consumable psychology. Ooh, that's the tagline. That's right. Missed it. That means that you can you can eat it if you would like to. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. A tasty a tasty podcast for your ears. <laughs> so we have such an interesting topic today. I loved doing the research for this because I although I knew a lot of the stuff about it already, what was really cool is to see how much other people have done on this and like where this has gone over time and everything. And of course that means that we're talking about synesthesia. Ooh. This is one of my favorites too. I, when I was a kid, um, I had learned about this and read about it. And it was one of those things where, you know, sometimes when you read about like, uh, like psychological disorders and stuff or like things that people suffer from, you're like, this is going to be, I want this. Like, you're like, it sounds cool. Right. I remember doing that when I was a kid. I'll go on the the first time I heard. So I'll go on the record for, for saying like, I was introduced to this. I forgot what it was. And then when we were redoing the show notes and like getting prepared for recording, I was like, why is this a thing that I've completely forgotten and not paid attention to? Because it's been super relevant in some of the potential, uh, practice I think I've done in the past, right? Like people could have been diagnosed with this and it could have been a totally different way that I approached the case. So I'm interested to, to really dive in more. It's been a fun one. Yeah, um, I think that the first time that I actually heard about this, I was like, what? That doesn't sound like a real thing. That sounds like something people are making up. Oh, yeah. But turns out it's actually really cool. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to disparage maybe someone who ha- experiences synesthesia and they really don't like it. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying you should just be grateful for your experience. Just that to me, it, personally, it sounds like something that. I, I would want to have and even more than that I think is that it just it's such an interesting topic I think as long as it's not overwhelming then it would be fun right like it definitely looks like it could be something that could be extremely overwhelming at certain times but there's a TED talk that we're going to link in the show notes of someone trying to visually show what it's like when she's playing the violin did you all see that one no I didn't see that so, one that's awesome so she she plays the violin and there's certain color patterns that kind of show up that they use the stage lighting for to kind of try to emphasize what it looks like and yeah, it would be such a different, rich experience, I think, as long as it wasn't just like completely overwhelming and dehabilitating or dehabilitating. No, debilitating is the word. Debilitating. Dehabilitating. Welcome. I have not had enough coffee just, this morning. You know, sometimes these disorders are just so anti-stabilizing. <laughs> Inventing new words. It'd be actually really fun if we consistently invented words sort of throughout the year on accident to just at the, like a year in review go through and say like what words did we invent this time around and just list them off. Dehabilitating is now on that list. Okay, so I guess we've already alluded to the fact that neither Ryan or I have this. Shane, do you have any experience with uh, synesthesia? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but who knows if that's been my norm. Ooh, that's sort of actually a teaser for the fact that uh, a fact coming up, I guess, against the population and their experience of this. So we should probably start by answering the question or asking and answering the question, I suppose, of what is this sort of thing? So there are a couple of definitions. One that I found that was pretty common is when stimulation of one type of sensation triggers experience of a different type of sensation. And then another one, which is saying sort of the same thing in a different way that I thought was really clear and I really liked is 
multiple sensory responses to a single sensory cue. And so you get what you might see is visual or auditory or even taste or feel, all of those sort of things that happen to a single cue that would normally be a visual cue, you might also have an auditory cue or something that is an auditory cue, you might also have a taste or a sound or a feel type of cue that uh, go with it as well, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so like basically, in, in kind of psychology today talks about it, like when one sense is activated, another unrelated sense is activated at the same time. So when you hear a noise, you see something. Or when you smell something, you taste it. Or it's like something that's not quite related, but it's something that um, like your senses are kind of like, it seems like uh, everything is kind of just off a little bit. Yeah, so you might have the experience of um, seeing a color when you hear a sound, as Ryan was alluding to with that uh, example of the, the TED Talk. Or one of the most common types of synesthesia that we'll talk about is called grapheme color synesthesia. And that is perceiving color or color patterns whenever you see words, letters, or numbers. So it has to do with some kind of symbolic communication like writing or text, and then seeing or experiencing colors associated with that that sense so you get it's those are both in that case visual stimuli but one of them is just text and one of them is color where the text isn't actually colored but you perceive color as if as if that text was colored if that makes sense yeah and a visual example that's that ted med talk by caitlin hova where she plays a violin and there's a bunch of colors that are showing so if you want an example to like go check out real quick and to see like how different this could potentially be for your just experience of day-to-day life <laughs> in all facets. Yeah. It's mind-blowing how crazy it would be. Super interesting. So today what we're looking to, to explore a little bit more is what do we know about this phenomenon? How can it be understood biologically and psychologically? And what do we still need to learn? So buckle up. Let's go. <laughs> we're going to solve all of this in the next 45 minutes. <laughs> or less. Or less. Boy, I think you can tell from Ryan's presentation that he does YouTube videos. Too <laughs> much. A perfect as a perfect YouTube segue. So much so hand hopefully. too. Yeah, lots of yeah. He does a lot of gesticulating. All the time. I need to get my hands under control, man. <laughs> they they wander as if independent from his body. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I wonder if someone has a format synesthesia to where hands produce like colors and effects. It's gonna be crazy. Like that might like, be like Jubilee from X Men. Like she's like fireworks everywhere. <laughs> That's a great one. Love that. All right. So let's get into the a little bit of background information here and the etymology of the word synesthesia. So syn means come together and aesthesis means sensation, um, which I believe all comes from Greek. I also found in Latin syn, which means with and anesthesia, which didn't have a definition. So just with anesthesia. <laughs> um, and as I said, for the most part, the places that I looked, it was referencing the sin and aesthesis, and that was from the Greek roots. Um, and then the APA described this, the the Greek word synesthesia, as meaning to perceive together. So that's sort of what the the history of the the root of that word is supposed to mean, or at least maybe evoke that that kind of meaning for the listener. Right. And, and so like kind of going back to where people started really discussing this, I guess. Okay. So the oldest attribution was to John Locke who had actually described a blind man who had experience with the color scarlet. Whenever he would hear her, hear trumpets, he would actually get some experience or some sensation of the color scarlet. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. That's so wild. And this actually had been talked about even before that in terms of 
the the there's a metaphor of of color being associated with music, and that goes all the way back to uh, to the Greeks as well. And even the word timber or timbre, if you've heard it, is meant to capture this idea of sort of the texture of sound, if you will, or the 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 experience of sound in how like warm it is or how crisp it is that sort of thing that's sort of captured in this idea where sound doesn't really have a temperature necessarily or a color or anything but we can people often can sort of experience it in that way if that if that makes sense it's unclear if they were describing this however in that metaphorical sense of just saying that color or sounds and music has these properties aside from just the notes that they but they sort of elicit a feeling or if they were alluding to someone who actually did have the experience of perceiving color with those sounds it's a little unclear from that caitlin from that tedx talk was talking or ted Matt, i guess um was talking about how at the very end of her first music class where the teacher at the very end like you know week 16 or whatever in the semester said something effective um, and some people can visually see these things and she's like, yeah, like, <laughs> duh. Isn't that why we're all here? <laughs> like, of course, everybody can visualize We're all here because music is amazing. Right. <laughs> um, and that's where she reported that she learned that she was different than a lot of other people. Um, and nice. could see in these sort of ways. That's pretty cool. So have you, have you guys seen the movie Aristocats? Yeah. Okay. Long time ago. So did, <laughs> did we did we grow up in the nineties? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, so yeah. so just kind of speaking yeah. to the idea that colors have or that sounds have color and stuff. Like the whole end sequence where they start playing in the in the like the apartment or anything. Like all the noises. Anytime like some of the music changes and stuff. Like there's these bright colors that flash whenever certain instruments come in and stuff. And like I guess Disney probably kind of tackles that idea of like uh, like color and music associated. You see that in a lot of their stuff. So you see it in current besides it being like a metaphor from greek uh culture and stuff you see that now in in a lot of like movies and stuff like that or specifically disney man i totally did not attend to that initially that also does remind me the though writers. of fantasia the writers sorry it's all good um that i was just gonna make a joke that i thought the writers were all tripping yeah <laughs> i mean to be fair scenes. they very well may have been they may have been <laughs> But that also reminds me a bit of like Fantasia and how there are these big elaborate scenes that seemed that are supposed to sort of represent, I think, the music that's being played. Yeah. And and how interesting it is to do usually the music is sort of put to the visuals, but I believe that the whole point of Fantasia was to put visuals to the music. Yeah. And create that sort of extra texture or experience or um, stimulation, if you will, in addition to just the sound that goes with it. So kinda cool. Yeah, so it's interesting to see kind of like the like kind of like the flavor of of synesthesia like within culture like that we may have experienced or seen like kind of what that might look like or what it might what one might experience to some degree but not quite the same. Yeah, specifically for as you're saying for people who don't actually wouldn't wouldn't be described as having synesthesia but could experiencing something that's sort of like synesthesia, right? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, although this is described as a neurological condition, there's not actually a formal diagnostic system or criteria for this. And part of the reason is that because this is not considered a disorder, it doesn't impact quality of life. And that's you know something we've talked about before in this podcast is what a disorder is, what the definition of a disorder is, and why it wouldn't end up in some kind of diagnostic manual. And this doesn't typically impact people in a way that it would qualify as a disorder if that makes sense right so what's interesting too is that the apa actually claims that the behaviorist movement suppressed research in this area so while there's not a lot of diagnostic what yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So so the APA claims that behaviorist movement suppressed research and inquiry into synesthesia, but there's not really a basis for that claim. There's not really a discussion around like why they think that. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting about this is that I, I, I read this from a couple different sources, although I think that they ended up ultimately being started from one place and then being repeated by other people down the road is that some people talked about the fact that because synesthesia is totally subjective and really difficult to measure that the the objective science angle that came in from the behaviorist position sort of pushed it into obscurity and so this was in sort of the early to mid 1900s where there was there was a lot of that dominating to discussion around psychological events, although that was also the rise of humanistic psychology. Anyway, the point being that I went through and looked because I was sort of saying, okay, I wonder what the behaviorist did or said about synesthesia that made it so that that was sort of suppressing that research. And I literally couldn't find anything except a couple of places where a couple of behaviorists said, this is what synesthesia is. And then that was it. And like, so I, I didn't find any one place where they're like, this isn't a real thing or this is subjective, so we can't study it. I'm not entirely sure where that claim sort of comes from. People hated on the behavioral movement. They really huh? did. So, yeah, as far as I could find, there really wasn't anything to suggest that the behaviorist movement explicitly did anything. Maybe they're just suggesting that because there was an emphasis on measuring objective behaviors that there was a lack of research that occurred on this, but they really did describe this as like the behaviorist movement sort of squashing it down. And I was curious to say, like, I'm wondering what that looked like and dug into the, the articles and stuff. And there just wasn't anything. And every time that it was described by someone who was a behaviorist sort of persuasion, if you will, or field, they always just defined synesthesia and often would give a case example of someone who had it and then just sort of moved to the next topic. So none of them ever talked about it in any kind of disparaging way or said that it couldn't be studied. So I thought that was kind of interesting claim for them to make. I don't know why they would like, what's the motivation for saying that? I mean, there was so, so many battles about between the behaviorists and the CBT folks, right? Like I'm guessing that's something that just kind of was picked up and continue to be hammered on. We know that there's evidence showing that textbooks miscommunicate the behavioral approach. I mean, there's literally evidence showing that people purposely are publishing without the accurate information. It's kind of ridiculous. So anyhow. Straw man. <sighs> yeah. So others in history have described experiences with things such as hearing color or even described as colored hearing. And this includes such notable figures in history as Isaac Newton, John Wolfgang von Goethe, Gustav Fechner, Carl Jung, Francis Galton, and Arnold Schoenberg, or maybe it's Schoenberg, if they pronounce that incorrectly. I don't know. That was pretty impressive. You nailed all those. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, many of the reports from the medical and psychological professionals started in 1812. So it's it's it goes back uh, quite a ways. I mean, you're talking about over 200 years of, of possibly studying this, um, and you started really seeing this kind of come to the forefront uh, in about 1812. It seems the internet as it usually does, breathe a fresh breath of air and a whole new life into this. Uh, we saw in 1989, the UK Synesthesia Association, uh, which is uh, acronym UKSA. UKSA. Uh, 1995, yeah, UKSA. <laughs> in 1995, the American Synesthesia Association in Belgium, Canada, Germany, and the Netherlands all have synesthesia associations from what we found. Yeah, all of those started being, were all founded 
as a function of the internet having developed and allowing people to communicate more easily their experiences about these things. So there, there are a lot of places around the world you can find groups of people who have synesthesia or communicate or talk about synesthesia or interested in it, researchers probably. So that's it's kind of interesting that the internet has really facilitated more research and understanding about this. Could you imagine what that conference is like? Very colorful. <laughs> it's just, but but nobody else sees it, but everybody who's in attendance. From the outside, <laughs> it's a normal black and white conference. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. So uh, a question I think that is interesting to ask in talking about synesthesia is what's it like for someone who has synesthesia? Like what what is the experience of it and, and who has it and... And that kind of stuff. Like, what is this this sort of thing sort of like? Yeah, so I think to kind of get into the same con- uh, conversation that we had around, like, tetrachromats and stuff like that, like when we talk about, like, is my version of color the same as your version of color and kind of discussing right. around that, I think most people don't really know until they realize other people are different. Like, so they don't really know that they have it until they start kind of describing their experiences and finding that someone else has a very different experience with some kind of uh, some kind of stimuli or some kind of, um, you know, maybe they are, they're reading and they don't realize that, everybody else is reading in black and white and they're reading in color or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And that goes back to that example that Ryan gave of that Ted med talk where she's sort of saying like, yeah, yeah, of course we visualize music. Of course it's, it's this, you know, partially visual medium that a, a lot of people who have this, they don't know that anybody else has seen something different from what they have until all of a sudden it starts to become apparent that they're experiencing it in a different way that other people are. In these settings that are the sort of vocal and social settings where there's going to be that learning going on. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if this is considered a gift per se. Like, uh, is this kind of fall under like the gifted and talented realm? Do we know? Well, so some people, they know that they have synesthesia, but they feel like they need to hide it. And then some do see this as, as a blessing, if you will, to see it as a gift. And, some also have reported that it can feel a little overwhelming, as you sort of pointed out at the in the beginning, that it just feels like there's so much going on that it's a little distracting or overbearing, if you will. I honestly can't imagine what it would be like to see colors with every note and piece of music or something like that. It just it sounds like it would be borderline debil- debilitating. Yeah, I suppose it could be. I mean, also think that if you grew up with that, that might just feel normal. Mm. And so yeah. it just depends, I think, on the, the person yeah, and their I, experience with it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, because we've talked about how there's an abundance of cues in this world that we I, we potentially could be attention to, right? Right. But there's only so much that actually starts to influence your behavior at a given time. So, yeah, I guess so. All right, so after kind of digging into the research a little bit and looking at the synesthesia and kind of what, what the most common type is, it looks like the most common type is this, I, this uh, grapheme color. Yeah, that's the one that I mentioned at the beginning where – in it, whenever someone looks at a letter, word, or number, that there is colors associated with those things, and it does tend to be the case that those colors are consistent for that person over time. So, a couple of questions around this to ask in terms of like how people experience this is is whether or not they are sensing or how they're sensing they're sensing that second associated stimulus. So, is it that they're like seeing the colors that are just sort of hovering in the air, or are the colors on the surface of something that's around them, or maybe the thing that they're looking at? Although it was thought to be the case that people were mostly seeing a lot of the 
the colors were tangibly on something. It turns out that this is actually only true for a small proportion of people, that most people tend to get the experience of a color, although they're not necessarily always visually seeing that color represented out in sort of space in front of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like it's just kind of, as we as we dig into it a little bit more, it doesn't seem like it's super overt. Like, it's not like these big blasts of neon red, right? Like, it's supposed to, it's more, it's a little bit more subtle than I think people might assume it might be. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine it might be hard you'd feel like it was obscuring your visual field if it was this big block of color that just sort of appeared out of nowhere. Instead, it's more of the sense of a color that's associated. And that actually leads to the point that it turns out there are two types of synesthesia that are talked about, either this projective or associative. So the projective type of synesthesia we look at, they kind of describe as seeing colors, forms, or shapes that are actually tangible. So they may see these, these like, these blocks of color or they may see these forms that are that are a little bit more tangible than say like a sense of color or something right and then they might be on something or they appear to be on something maybe not quite like a hallucination but it seems like they're taking on part of the visual stimulus or whatever thing that they're like if it's an auditory thing they're hearing music they might actually see those those things projected onto a surface somewhere okay yeah yeah that sounds fun maybe it looks like a hologram so the counter the counter to that would be the associative type, which I, I don't know, is this more abstract? Like it's more this like this feeling of a connection between those two senses? Yeah, exactly. Rather than seeing it, but it's more like I can kind of sense this sort of thing. Yeah, the impression I get from the description of this for people who are who have synesthesia and have what might be described as the associative type of synesthesia, it's that they might hear a sound and like this that gentleman who we referenced earlier that was being described by John Locke that he would hear the sound of a trumpet and he would get the sense scarlet he would he wouldn't necessarily I mean he was blind so he's not seeing anything but um, you know he presumably is having the visual sense of of scarlet that he would sort of feel that if that makes sense yeah 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 I don't know that that makes sense. I, you know, like that's kind of where this goes back to. Like, I don't know that I've had, I mean, I can understand the idea of like, you know, you, maybe you get a certain feeling when you see colors and stuff like that, but I just, I can't, I can't, I couldn't describe the feeling of Scarlet. Yeah. Um, I hear what you mean. I think it's uh, maybe the grapheme color one is an easier one to relate to of where someone sees a particular letter and they don't actually see it as that color, but they get the sense of that color when they look at it. Yeah. They're sort of like, Oh, that, that letter reminds me of the color blue or something like that might be a, a better way of describing sort of what that associative, um, sense is. And that's how most people with synesthesia tend to experience it as, as was reported in the, in the literature. Okay. Now, most of the time you have people who have one type of sense modality that, tr- that is associated with the response and, uh, multiple sense modalities. So for example, um, in the grapheme color, you'd have letters, words, and numbers all have a visual one. Um, or you might have someone who has an auditory one with the music thing. So they'll get a visual stimulation with an auditory stimulation. Um, if that makes sense. So they'll experience visual when they hear auditory. Um, but there, there are people who have some multimodal ones. So the think about the five senses of seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and, um, and hearing that they can cross over in any number of ways, any number of ways. Can you have those associations? And for 
some people they'll have multiple so they'll have something that's a a smell and a taste that is produced from hearing a sound so they get like all three of those things and one person ever was reported having all five senses triggered by one another so everything was all linked together although it's unclear how accurate or true that description was it wasn't in a peer review or anything like that also could you imagine how intense that would be is that any time a, a stimulus stimulus is presented like you have a, all of those senses are activated at the same time i feel i i can't imagine no i feel like i would not know how to interpret the world around me if every single sensory input like reacted to every type of stimulus that could occur yeah that would be really difficult if if i could taste every sound i would lose my mind <laughs> <laughs> no kidding right <laughs> I, just, I just i just that's all i can I, that's it's the only way i can relate to is it. like you're tasting sound you're you're feeling color like i mean that's that's like i mean if you're looking at it like from a really a simplified version of it if you're describing all five senses being triggered that's a lot of what it would be like yeah that's a good point so the question comes up of like what do people actually experience and i feel like we've talked about this on this before first of all i don't know if we even know what the exact, like we don't even have a shared language for the exact color of something, much less trying to describe someone's personal experience of the combination of two senses. So I don't even know how to wrap my head around, like what is the color of a number? Even if they say number one looks like red or feels like red, like, is there any way for us to understand this perspective? I don't think so. Well, I mean, if you were to just, I'm wondering like inventory, the people who say that they have synesthesia, that's specifically grapheme color and say, all right, when you see the number one, what color do you see? And does it's, it'd be interesting if everybody saw the same color, right? I mean, also interesting if everybody saw something different, but there'd be uh, maybe a different way of thinking about this, depending on the kind of report that you get. And so I think asking the question, you know, what what type of stimulus is associated with what type of response with respect to what color are they seeing in a for a, every number? Well, it turns out, as you might imagine, that everybody is different, although there are some that tend to be more likely to occur. So for this grapheme color, for example, people tend to report that they see A as red, they see O as white or black. And they see S as yellow. That's fairly common that they'll have that that a lot of people will report very similar. And there are other ones that are more common than others. But and those aren't totally static. You'll have people who see A as something totally different. But it's interesting, I think, that you have the tendency to see the same sorts of colors that are reported for the same types of letters for the grapheme color synesthesia. Hmm. It doesn't make sense why that would happen unless there's some cultural component to it. Right? We'll get there. <laughs> We're going to dig into hypotheses, my friend. Yep. So I guess the question is like, so you've got somebody who perceives the world like this. They 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 contact the world in a different way than maybe somebody who has, uh, you know, I don't want to say normal senses, but somebody who doesn't report that they've got this type of experience, right? So would we expect them to remember more or less or no different from others? Like how does that impact the rest of the way that they like that they operate? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And as we've talked about in our memory episode where memory is associated with different cues, it the hypothesis would be then that they should remember 
at least slightly more because if they're experiencing those things with those additional cues, then they would have additional um, cues that are there that would support recall of the things that they were interacting with such that they would remember them better. You could like build a memory palace off of colors with lyrics of a song. You could, absolutely. And so that's actually what the research has shown specifically is that people with synesthesia do tend to remember things better that are associated with the senses for which they have the synesthesia experience. And it makes perfect sense. Like that is what the hypothesis would have predicted that with additional cues, you have stronger memories. And that has been shown to be the case more or less. Synesthesia, superhuman powers. Yeah, man. Some sort of tagline like this, right? No, yeah, that's exactly this. I think synesthesia goes right up there with tetrachromats with real life superpowers. Yeah, so cool. Love to chat with somebody. If you're listening, you have it. Give us a call. Yeah, please. All right, so time to dig into how this works. The quick start is no one knows exactly, but there's a lot of different hypotheses as to what may be going on here. Right. And it's almost universally only considered synesthesia if it's automatic and involuntary. So I guess you can't learn to teach yourself how to be synesthetic. Would that be the word? A synesthete. Is synesthete. The, yeah, the descriptor. And then there's consistent and generic. Can you describe this again, Abraham? Yeah, so consistent meaning that they tend to have the same response to the same cue in, over time. So if they see A as red, as we mentioned earlier, they'll kind of always see A as red. And then uh, it also is, um, it has been a criteria in the past to only call it synesthesia if it's generic, which is to say that it's relatively simple. So they're not seeing a complex pattern that goes with a with a letter, for example, or with a the sound. They're usually seeing some sort of simple abstract hues and and shapes um, that are so you know they'll, they'll see the the color yellow they won't see a, a like a tapestry of of shapes and, and stuff that go with the the sound or whatever that they hear if that makes sense okay yeah so the first hypothesis is this cross activation hypothesis which is the neurocircuitry is crossing paths which is apparently evidenced by the peripheral vision like the fact that these sort of things cross am i correct yeah, specifically what what is being referred to here is that the idea is that there are neurons that simply that that simply fire at the same time. Like they they're just so associated that whenever this one stimulus is triggered, it triggers the neurons that are also associated with like the visual stimulation. If we're thinking about auditory to visual, for example, and the peripheral vision part of this is that they've done these tests that are super interesting where they'll have someone be focusing their vision on like a screen or something and they'll flash a number for a hundredth of a second off to in their peripheral vision off to the right or left side of the screen and they're specifically tracking where their eyes are looking but they'll flash one of these things and then they'll ask them to report what they saw and most people can't report accurately what number or letter they saw but people who who have synesthesia when they, they'll be able to actually report because they'll see the color. They won't even see necessarily the number, but they'll see the color that's associated with the number that they would see. So if, if for them, or I'll go back to the letter example, if, if it's an A and it flashes and it was too quick for them to see what letter it was, but they saw red, they'd be able to accurately report red. And they do so with a higher accuracy than people who do not claim to have synesthesia. You've been learnt. Thanks. <laughs> Get learnt. <laughs> <laughs> great learned we'll learned, up, we'll learned up for what well yeah learned up for what 
<laughs> All right, so that is that is the cross activation hypothesis. Now we have the disinhibition hypothesis. All right, so with the disinhibition hypothesis, the idea is that sensory pathways are not inhibited or there's no like governor on those pathways. And so multiple senses are activated at the same time even when they're unrelated. And so um, there's some evidence in that when it's induced in non-synesthetes, when they experience brain trauma or certain drugs. So like when you talk about like taking a hit of acid or specific types of brain injuries, uh, you might have similar experiences or similar symptoms of synesthesia um, based on, on those types of experiences. Right. The idea being that all of our senses are sort of available to respond at any given moment, but they don't necessarily respond like my ears aren't necessarily responding to a visual cue because they don't have anything to respond to with respect to a visual cue. But what might happen is that if you're thinking about neurologically, the nerves and the neurons that are associated with visual stimulation, they're not inhibited when I'm receiving a visual cue. So I might perceive an auditory cue at the same time, just because drugs or brain trauma has prevented those from, or I guess has facilitated them remaining sensitive to stimulation, even though it's not the correct kind of stimulation, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of counter the idea that somebody who is not a synesthete you know, who has had brain trauma or certain drugs exposure, um, who's had these experiences, synesthetes report no change, right? So they, so when they have these similar experiences like exposure to drugs or alcohol, or maybe some type of brain trauma, they don't have a a change in their experience. So that kind of provides a little bit more credence to this particular hypothesis. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. Well, it was supposed to be a counter, like that was the, the argument against the disinhibition is that you'd think that things that affect those those pathways um, and people who worse than aesthetes uh, would also change their experience if, if they suffered those things, and it didn't. So that seems to maybe be counter evidence to this, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, well, I see the way I read it was like the evidence for this is that when there's exposure to certain things non-synesthetes have synesthetic experiences but synesthetes who get exposed to that don't have a change in their experience so they're technically don't they don't have governors on their sensory pathways oh i see okay that's the way i read it yeah um another hypothesis is this ideasthesia hypothesis which is just the word idea and aesthesia pushed together <laughs> if you're having trouble understanding the words that I'm saying too, it's understandable because it's weird. <laughs> there are so many soft consonants in that word. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Um, and so this hypothesis is that synesthesia is what might be regarded as a semantic phenomenon. And what that means is that if it is cognitively assigned, that is verbally, so we sort of think about it, if it's cognitively assigned to the eliciting stimulus so that the person experiencing this phenomenon must interpret and understand that situation. And when they when they go through this cognitive process of interpreting whatever sense they're experiencing, they do so, um, that's when they assign meaning to, to that experience that, that results in having multiple sense modalities activated. So this argument is suggesting that we sort of mentally associate those senses together so that when we experience one, we have to perceive that sense as actually being what it is in order for it to trigger the synesthesia sense. So we would have to 
understand that we were looking at a letter and the letter was A in order for our minds to interpret that as being also the color red. Or we'd have to hear music and understand the notes and the timbre of what we hear. And maybe timbre is not a good example here, but we'd have to like the notes and the themes that we hear such that we could interpret those as a visual aid. And so that's the sort of ideasthesia hypothesis is that we create these cognitive or mental or verbal, however you want to talk about it, associations where we only get those associations if we perceive them as the the stimulus that we un, we have that association with. So another hypothesis is that there is the genetic component to this, or what you might just call the genetic hypothesis. And this is the idea that synesthesia is genetic and therefore an inherited trait. Now, it's unclear what or how genes would actually cause the experience of synesthesia, and it's, it's not known how that necessarily would work. But one of the pieces of evidence for this is that there is a relatively high prevalence of synesthesia among first relatives, so parents to children and brothers and sisters, that sort of thing. And it's also relatively high among monozygotic twins. And also, again, against uh, dizygotic twins, which is to say, uh, maybe commonly referred to as fraternal and identical twins, uh, where monozygotic refers to colloquially identical twins, but it just means that they come from the same egg. Anyway, the fact that it's not entirely present in monozygotic twins who share 100% the same DNA implies that it has to be affected by um, epigenetic and environmental variables, according to the researchers. And there is a specific article that, that concluded this by Bosley and Eagleman in 2015 in the journal Behavior and Brain Research that concluded that because if this was an entirely genetic trait, it would be present in monozygotic twins all of the time and there'd be no reason for it not to be present if they were in fact monozygotic twins it might it might be not present in dizygotic twins but in monozygotic it really has to be and because it's not that really implies that there has to be something else going on now another interesting phenomenon is that if this was not genetic you'd expect it to be relatively homogeneous distribution among different demographics however it tends to be more common among women and also tends to be more common among left-handed people. So left-handed women are especially highly likely <laughs> to have synesthesia, yeah. And for some weird reason, it's much more common among women in the UK than anywhere else in the world where it's been reported. So that was kind of an interesting thing as well. Now, because there's not a super clear definition on this, there's also not a super clear diagnostic tool for this. Estimates for how prevalent this actually is among humans ranges from anywhere from I saw as low as 0.0001% to as high as 25% of the population and pretty much everything in between there. Yeah, so there's a, there's a into, tremendous range. I ran into 4% quite often, but I also saw that same range. Yeah, I saw four and five percent, and we'll uh, we'll see an example here in just a moment of why it might be as high as twenty five percent, and maybe even higher than that, depending on how you go about defining this. Now, there also was an article in which author Baron Cohen, who's also come up before on the show, suggested that it's more common among people who have an autism diagnosis. Uh, however, I don't believe that that was based on any actual research. And I'm pretty skeptical about Baron Cohen. He's made a lot of very dubious claims in the past. And I tend to, if I if I see his name attached to a particular claim, I, I tend to interpret that as, as being 
I'm not so sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. unless I already know the research behind this and I'm aware of the empirical basis for that claim. When he makes claims like this that seem a little outlandish to me and nobody else is making them, it makes me think that I, I just don't know how much stock I can put into that. That family's known for some outlandish stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, but scientifically he is alone. Sorry, bad island. kind of reference to Sasha Baron Cohen. They're cousins, right. I believe, yeah. They are cousins, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially thinking about from a behavioral point of view, we're looking at sort of what what is the body doing? And we know that we're talking about a fully functional perceptive organ um, responding to cues is, is what those organs do. So our eyes respond to visual stimuli, our nose responds to olfactory stimuli or smells, our ears respond to auditory stimuli, and, and so on. And so the hypothesis is that, as you mentioned, early in development, certain senses are not really distinguished from one another or are presented together so frequently that they become intrinsically associated, if you way. And so I was kind of curious about this. And so I've mentioned this so many times on here, maybe you'll remember. Do you recall what color people tend to see when they see the letter A? Red. How about S? Yellow. Blue. It was, it was yellow. I was just guessing. Okay. <laughs> and then and then O tend to be um, white. Black and or, white. Yeah, black, black or white. So I, I looked at some pictures of blocks online because I was curious, is there anything to this hypothesis? And I looked at a... a at least a few dozen, if not dozens, of pictures of different letter blocks. And guess what color A was almost all of the time? Red. Almost always red. It was almost always red. Guess what color S was almost all of the time? Maybe yellow. It was mostly yellow. It was often green, but it was mostly yellow. And then, you, know, you, you give me a hard time of watching documentaries about roadside attractions in the 1950s before we hit record on this <laughs> podcast. But you're doing things like looking this up. This I just want to mark. <laughs> Maybe we're going to record an episode on the psychology behind 1950s roadside attractions. Yeah. I mean, I also go back to what looks better on a Google search. Children's toys or 1950s roadside attractions. So. Probably the latter, actually. Yeah, so, no, that's fair. But anyway, I also thought I'd raise the sort of skeptical flag for a moment and say that if it's true that those those things are so commonly associated, then why don't more people have that association, right? So, like, if most people play with these color blocks that have those, those are the same sort of colors, then why wouldn't a lot of people see red when they see A, as opposed to only a few? And maybe one answer to that is that there are people who are already going to have, they're like more likely to have the tendency to have that association, and so they sort of capitalized on the moment as they were developing those senses. Or for them, it was associated earlier on, or I'm not entirely sure, you know, what would be, but as we already know, there is, there's there's always going to be some kind of genetic component to this, and so it could have been just the right combination of those two things at that time to develop it. All right, so are we safe to say it sounds like if this is true, what's going on is it's falling under this reflexive conditioning um, where there's like these simple associations being paired because they're close in time to each other. Not that someone's purposely pairing them, but they're just occurring close in time. And that's where the association with these two cues are coming from. Is that fair to say, Abraham? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, just... Assuming that as as we're developing and learning at an early age that we have there these really, really common associations, and this will actually come back in, in just a little bit, that these we might like always hear particular sounds that occur during a meal, or we might always see a particular color when we eat a particular food or something like that, such that as we're 
as we're growing up, those things were always, always, always so linked that the association is just automatic. It's sort of fluent, if you will. And you might have the example of like, if you are a kid who's growing up in a place in time where there's, you're in an urban area and across the street, there's like this jazz club that has these scarlet drapes. And so every time you hear a trumpet and you just remember, like you might look over and see scarlet that entire time that eventually trumpet and scarlet just go together you know what i mean and that and that's i just completely made that up but that was specifically to go along with that gentleman that was described early on who whenever he heard a trumpet he saw scarlet is it possible that what happened was there was just always like that those two things were always associated with one another when he was growing up maybe maybe not maybe it was something else but i'm just trying to to look at if those things are closely associated early on could they become these automatic associations and if so, could that be at least a partial explanation for why people tend to develop this? All right, so how, how do we go about testing to see if someone has synesthesia and, and like what their synesthesia is like? We ask them and hope that they're right. <laughs> that was, Next! That was perceptive. That was, that was really succinct. Great. Right? Yeah, so testing is pretty simple, right? So uh, basically what we do is we ask people to ID their perceived second set uh, or second sense, right? So the color, smell, taste, personality, whatever it might be, when presented with a particular stimulus. So uh, so stimulus is presented, uh, maybe some kind of visual cue, like a number or a letter, and then we ask them to report on what they experience as that second sense. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the personality thing that sometimes the senses aren't just things like like color or texture, but there also might be ex- the experience of it having a particular quality. And then in this case, it has like its own its own personality. So some people will think of and this oh this also happens with like days of the week, like Monday is a very p- certain color. There's a whole type of synesthesia that's like how certain things are organized, that they, they uh, visualize them in a particular way. And, um, and that they might think of Monday as being like a very angry, aggressive sort of personality, if that makes sense. Um, I would generally think of Monday that way, but, um, a couple of Mondays are awesome. Good for you, buddy. It's the first day to get out and just kick ass. (laughs) I mean, that's, uh, if you, if you assign Monday to be the start of your kick week. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just make every day the start of your kick. What if you start kicking on Sunday? We're saying a lot of ass and this is. You're going to have to be edited, so sorry. True. All right, so some of the tests, as we already mentioned, there's the peripheral vision test. Some other ones they'll do is they'll do math problems. If, uh, for example, the grapheme color synesthesia, people who see consistently certain colors for certain numbers, if they're presented with a math problem that's just those colors, then they should be able to actually give the answer correctly. Or where one of the colors is, or one of the numbers is there and one of the colors is there, they could give the answer and that sort of thing. Or some people who will... Um, be able to see the answer to a problem that they would otherwise have to spend a lot of time working out because the color is all written in answers. Does that make sense how I'm saying that? So if like the answer was, if they saw a, a multiplication problem where it was like 17 times 34 and they could just see and the colors were already written out what the answer was and they could just tell you what the answer was really quickly because they could see the colors that were there, if that, if that sort of makes sense. Hmm. Another one that's interesting is uh, is fairly common is when you have a sort of scattered presentation of the cues. This this one's still capitalizing on the grapheme color synesthesia, but in the example that I saw, it was like if you had there's a bunch of fives written all over this like piece of paper, 
And then you had twos that were basically written like backwards fives that were scattered in there. Although the twos did actually form a shape. If you just look at the picture, it's really hard to even tell that there's anything other than fives to begin with. But what's interesting is that people who report having this grapheme color synesthesia will see this picture of a scattered field of a bunch of fives and a few twos that make a shape and they'll almost instantly see the shape in the pattern. So it's really hard for people who don't have that. They'll look at that and they just say like, uh, I guess there might be a two there and maybe there's one there, but they'll like look at it and instantly see, oh, those are in the shape of a triangle in that visual field. And so that is another piece of evidence for, or, or I guess how to go about testing and evidence for how they perceive this. So another way that they, that they can actually test for this is um, using some type of auditory stimuli or some kind of sound and then asking the participant or the subject to report or ID the shape or color or smell that they experience. So you kind of have the other side of it where um, here's a sound, tell me what you see or tell me what you experience. So what you're looking for here is just consistency in the reporting, correct? I mean, that's one, one thing they're going to look for, yeah. What are other things? Like, can we pull that apart for listeners? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to get. If you're just trying to get at whether or not they have synesthesia, then consistency is something. Although one thing I was going to raise in here as a question is, is it unreasonable to expect that for some people their synesthesia will kind of shift and change over the time as they learn more and more things and they become they get exposed to more and more stimuli in the world? Would that adjust, shift, change, or otherwise sort of add more detail to the synesthetic the yeah. synesthetic experience that they're having I don't know but I mean you're right that they do look for the consistency in this and that what they found is that synesthetes are more likely to report the same associated perception with about 90% consistency even with years between testing whereas people who are non-synesthetes will only give about 30 to 40% consistency after even only a couple of weeks without testing um, and so that, that came from... That's, that's impressive, dude. Being 90% accurate is hard. Yeah, after a like, couple of years of no practice. Yeah, no, that's that's like really impressive. Now, I got that from a book called Synesthesia, A Union of the Senses, which I linked to in the show notes. I'm not sure if that actually came from specific research. I had a hard time finding an article that that was pinned to, but it, that was at least what was reported in that, that book. So one source suggested that most people experience a form of synesthesia when a smell or a sound triggers a memory from another experience. So uh, I think most of us have had a, some type of experience like that where you, you, you maybe smell grandma's cookies and you kind of have a memory triggered from that. Yeah, so for for myself, I have a personal example, which I, I would never really thought of this as synesthesia. I still don't, actually. But this is an example that, that the authors of this argued that most people actually do experience a form of synesthesia with these sort of triggers. And for me, the third album by the band, Further Seems Forever, it always immediately and instantly triggers a memory of playing Halo 2 when that first came out. And like the, the online... Um, player player mode it's immediately there and it's a really powerful like feeling that i have that sort of triggers that memory and so these authors are sort of suggesting that that synesthesia is not really fundamentally different than when you have those powerful memory responses to those specific cues that are when you have the other sense so like i get the and it's not exactly visual you know what i mean but it is like i can i, I immediately think of what it looks like and feels like to play halo as soon as i hear the first couple songs off of that album it's like bright eyes and uh how they take me back to drinking in the fish lab with my old uh, colleagues in the early graduate school days drinking like a fish 
Yeah. Or like uh or like uh Bad Religion and me going to see them but listening to them on the way to a show uh with a couple friends of mine, like just kinda cruising down I four. So it's it's there's some good stuff there. Yeah. Cru- cru- cruising down the street and you're six four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Drug things. All right. Um, All right. So here's a couple other interesting tidbits really quick that I found. It was I was interested to see that synesthesia also has been proposed to be related to the idea of misophonia. Have you guys heard about this? No, no. We should actually be very well attuned to this as podcasters because this is something that people experience. It's an it's an auditory sort of thing. And it's when people experience these really intense negative emotions when they hear specific sounds for a lot of people. It's like mouth chewing sounds or sort of like lip smacking sounds, swallowing sounds. It reminds me of that episode that we produced a while back. Yes. I, I imagine that the ASMR episode we did would be very hard for someone with misophonia, specifically with misophonia around mouth sounds, to have listened to. But, um, but anyway, the, it's interesting that people relate that that these might, these might be similar sort of phenomenon. Um, another interesting thing that may, might not surprise a lot of people is that a lot of synesthetes tend to be artists, or vice versa. I was actually wondering, maybe a lot of artists tend to be synesthetes. Unclear, but uh, that there is a correlation there. I'm going to um, a big uh, artist like creator meetup in uh, the next month. I'm going to ask folks if do anyone it. there. Yeah, it would be awesome to get a follow up and just chat too. Yeah, record it. Like we'd totally post that in as even like a, a, its own have, segment or a bonus episode or something. Yeah, I'll have my camera there. If someone's comfortable sharing, then totally will. It'd be uh, amazing. Some uh, some researchers are hoping that research into synesthesia will really help illuminate how consciousness works. Um, I think if they ever define consciousness, that will really help them yeah. with that <laughs> investigation of theirs. But otherwise, uh, I yeah. guess all I can say is good yeah. luck. De- define it in a world that actually exists, and then we can start talking. Right. There's 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 a listener somewhere that just got so upset about you laughing about consciousness. Like, let's define consciousness, and then you just laughing at them. Like, they're like they're spending their life's work going like, I just want to understand this, and they're like, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we kind of tackle that in our consciousness episode specifically. But yeah, yeah. I mean, and I and I don't mean to disparage anybody the things that they're passionate about, but it is one of those things that we've talked about. Like, how what do you expect to learn about something that you have no idea what it's even supposed to be? Like it doesn't seem to have any kind of definition or anything. And, right. and I just am thinking like, until we've all agreed on like what it is we're trying to look for, what's the point in trying to look for it? That's I don't know. That's my thought. I'm cool with that. Okay. <laughs> so the, the last area we've kind of referenced to is that drugs can produce synesthesia like experiences. I've never personally dabbled enough to speak on this topic. Oh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly yeah, no, have neither. So, I'm fine with reporting that I have. Um, it was just once, and it was with um, mushrooms, if you will. And uh, I can definitely say, I mean, the, the problem with relating it necessarily is that it does more than just mess with like your perception of things in terms of just like the senses, like color and an auditory and taste and all that. It's it is very. Like it changes everything about your experience in that particular moment. In this case, that moment being five or six hours long, but it, it definitely does make it so that there, 
I don't want to say like it crosses, but I mean, that is kind of what it is. Like uh, I'll give an example. Actually, I was, I was with some friends and one of them was, if you ever those old windows media player things, this was years ago. Now I'm dating myself really hard right now, but they, they <laughs> still do have that application. Just so okay, you know. sweet. Well, the thing that it does all these crazy visuals while music is playing. And so the music had been put on and it was on that visual thing, but someone had actually like muted it. So all you could see was the visuals. And he was staring at this thing for like a good 45 minutes with just staring at it intently and finally came over and said, man, what are you doing? He said, he's telling the story, buddy. I, I, I can see it. <laughs> and, and, and now I know I had a similar experience of like just a multiple, like, perceptions that seem like they didn't really correspond going together. So it certainly can happen. Although I think that people who have synesthesia, I, I don't mean to imply that it's like they're just on mushrooms all the time. I don't think that's what their, their experience is like yeah, at all. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, just, just, I think that it can sort of mimic some of the effects of that a little bit to be yeah. able to have those hallucinating drugs. I think, I think this is probably as close as you could possibly get without actually having synesthesia, and it's not quite the same experience. We need to get Joe Rogan on this podcast to sort this out. This is like the third or fourth time we've dropped his name, too, so probably. <laughs> <laughs> we need his expertise. That, right. That's not like – I don't set goals off of things that are of that nature because they're impossible and they're stupid to set. But like, I would love to chat with him sometime. Seems like, um, seems like about, a cool dude about psychology related stuff he's so interested in it yeah all right well although nearly half of what we've recorded is going to get cut so this won't be all that terribly long we should probably (laughs) try and wrap this up now do some take-homes what do you think sounds good let's do it so point one synesthesia is super cool and super interesting especially if someone's out there listening that has any experience with this please write us in let's just chat behind the scenes we want to understand more about what's going on here We'd love to share your story if you're willing to have let us. But even if not, like I, I would be interested just in learning about some more. Like I, I've just I've never talked to anybody who reported having this experience, and I'd love to learn more about people who do experience this. So I mean, this is kind of as we mentioned, this is sort of another one of those real life superpowers, similar to the tetrachromat tetrachromacy that we tackled on the show, and uh, and maybe some other things as well. But uh, just a really neat thing, and I think so. Uh, thinking about this in sort of a positive way, and I certainly don't want people who have synesthesia to feel like they should be ashamed of it at all. It's I think it's I think it's neat. So, yeah, one thing too, kind of a take on point, it tends to be automatic and involuntary, so you can't really trigger your own synesthesia. Like you can't like give yourself a superpower or mutate yourself to get that. Not as far as we know, at least. Not as far as we know, yeah. <laughs> It tends to last throughout the lifetime. As far as we can tell, people who have it just sort of always have it. Uh, There hasn't been anything that I saw, at least, that this goes away or decays or anything. Although I am still curious about whether or not this morphs and changes as one learns more things. And surprise, but no one really knows exactly what's occurring. And it seems to have some sort of genetic and environmental component. But that's kind of our conclusion a lot of times when it comes to human behavior and cognition. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sorry. Very true. I'm sorry if you were expecting more there. Maybe fast forward in a thousand years and we'll understand more. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess we'll also just say that many different kinds of associations can occur with this. So it's not always just going to be the grapheme color, although that's the most common. But there can be the auditory visual or like tech. Uh, tactile so what you feel and then what you taste i mean any any two that you can relate together can can happen for people yeah and that's that's it right that's it i got a couple of corrections to make i'll be really fast on okay all right so 
in going back and editing and doing all the stuff for the tetrachromacy episode i realized that several times i referred to the retina scattering light the retina does not actually do that the cornea does um so apologize for that i also referred to uh color vision and mammals what i really meant to say was animals <laughs> just generally <laughs> speaking uh so that that was an accident on my part on there so yeah, those are just two things to make in those corrections. I apologize if that was weird or if you got distracted by the fact that I was saying wrong things. All right, cool. cool. I think we awesome. I think we've resolved that. All right, that's well, it. Um, it's been fantastic hanging out with you all. Appreciate yeah. it so much. I will say we did have uh, we a couple of pieces of listener mail, but I'm I'm hoping to get a little more correspondence before we actually publish them on here. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on those for now. All right, cool. This is uh, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham, and this is Shane. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Yeah, I guess we could do that. Ryan, you want to do that? <laughs> of course he's frozen. Yeah, of course he would freeze. Of course. Of course he would do that. Come on, Rhino. <sighs> Rhino. That's all right. I'll, I'll jump in with the definition. I'll let him come back. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yuki. Yuki. Oh, he froze again. No, I'm here. <laughs> oh, <okay>. I was <laughs> reading. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're super still. Gotcha. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you went full Drax on us. <laughs> <laughs> <And> cons- <laughs>